Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 13 through 20 this morning as we look at Jesus the Messiah here in Matthew 16. Our key idea that we're going to be considering together this morning is this, to be encouraged because Jesus the King is building his church. Jesus the King is building his church. So I'll begin reading in Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, today is a little bit like, I don't know, one of those flashcard moments. In other words, if you have young children and you're teaching them one plus one equals two, you flash, you know, you put the card up and, you know, they think about it and then two plus two equals four and four plus four equals eight, eight plus eight equals 16, you kind of go on and you know they're really getting it when, when they don't have to think about it. When, when they're looking at it and they aren't, they aren't counting up or kind of on their fingers, you know the moment they get it because they're just kind of running through those cards, running through those cards. Well, the disciples have seen a lot of Jesus by this time, but they're still really slow on those flashcards. Uh, in other words, they look at Jesus and they're still not really understanding who he is and they're certainly not instinctively grasping his identity. We've seen some Gentiles understand more clearly who Jesus is than his disciples have. The demons themselves have proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God, but the disciples haven't yet seen Jesus for who he is. And today, a little bit of light dawns in their lives, and we, we see them begin to grasp the edges of Jesus' identity as Peter finally declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, you may remember that Jesus and his disciples are traveling largely throughout kind of the northern area of Israel. And so here we are up near the Sea of Galilee. Last week, we find ourselves, found ourselves on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Magdala. You can't see it here on this map, but it's not too far, kind of between Gennesaret and Tiberias there. And then we've traveled north. They've landed at Bethsaida, and today they've tra- they're traveling north, 25, 25 miles north to the town of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, uh, creatively enough, is named after Caesar and Philip. That may be a little hard to figure out, but I think maybe you can see that in the name there. Uh, When Herod the Great died, he left his kingdom to his sons, to Tetrarchs, one of whom was named Herod Philip. And Herod Herod Philip, being a, a humble guy like his dad named this city after himself and after Caesar Augustus, the, the emperor of Rome, sort of to flatter him, but also, I don't know, to give himself a little bit of a hat tip at the same time. And so he took a little town, he built it out, made it much greater, and it became kind of this uh, large area at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is a rather large mountain. It's really a series of peaks that you can see from a long distance away. So if you look back at this map here and look down kind of to the southwest, you see the, the town of Nazareth. Well, on a clear day, you can see Caesarea Philippi. You can see Mount Hermon on a clear day from Nazareth. So it's, it's, it's quite this kind of significant location. And so Jesus has traveled up into this area, and it's here where Peter makes this declaration. And we're going to see two key truths today. The first one is this, that Jesus is the Savior King. 
He's not a king like the disciples have expected or anticipated, but rather he's something different. Well, this spot where Jesus is gathered now with his disciples has been a center of pagan idolatry for centuries. First of the the god Baal, the Canaanite god, then a Greek god named Pan, and now it's the worship of Caesar himself. And it's here that Jesus asks an all-important question in verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, this title, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself. It's his favorite title for himself. You'll notice that Peter actually turns around and calls him something different, but Jesus calls himself this. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel predicts that one is coming who is like a son of man. And when he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So by Using this title, one that other people didn't typically use of him, Jesus is pointing to his kingdom, to an eternal kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And the way that he asked the question indicates that he wasn't asking merely a single question. It was a question that he was beginning a conversation. The the way that Matthew says it is actually more like this. He began asking them the question, "Who, who do people say that I am? So he's starting a discussion with his disciples. Now, this is not the first discussion we've seen Jesus' disciples have. They have a lot of discussions normally about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're kind of concerned about their place. But Jesus asks them the most important question, who do people say that I am? Who is Jesus? I was recently at a meeting. It was an interfaith meeting. And by that, I mean, you could be a person of no faith or of, of different faiths, different denominations, Christian or otherwise, and I was seated next to a Muslim imam. He was a very, very kind man. We had a good conversation. We spent the whole day with each other. And at one point, he was trying to build some common ground, and there's some truth in what he says. And he says, you know, you teach about Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, and, and we teach about Abraham, Moses, and Jesus as well. And there's some truth in this. But we also teach that Jesus is not merely one of the prophets, one of the great messengers from God, but rather that Jesus is the eternal God himself in human flesh. He was a prophet who preached the words of God, but he himself is different in identity from any other human being who has ever lived. Jesus is unique. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God in human flesh. He's very different. And so if someone came to you today and asked you this question, who is Jesus, what what would you say? How would you identify Jesus? He's not merely a great prophet. He's the eternal son of God. Well, Modern theories aren't the first theories that we've had about Jesus' identity. And so the disciples come out with some common theories in verse 14, and there are really three here that we see. People say, some people say he's John the Baptist, others that he's Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This isn't the only time that we see these three theories. In fact, the same three theories are made about John the Baptist himself, that he is Elijah or one of the prophets. Now, Jewish interpreters are fascinated with the prophet Elijah in particular. And if you think back to your Old Testament history, you may remember why this is. Elijah didn't die, but rather he was taken into heaven. And so Jewish theory taught that Elijah himself would sort of become reincarnated and come back. And so the idea was that these first century prophets, one of them would be kind of the reincarnation of Elijah. So the prophets proclaim that the Messiah is coming. And the Jews look at Jesus and they say that he's predicting the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, the Messiah has come. The Messiah is here. But people don't yet understand this. 
And so we have these theories, but then we have an answer in verses 15 to 17. Jesus gets back to his key question. First he's asked, who do people say that I am? And now he comes back and he says, but who do you say that I am? Jesus has a way of doing this, doesn't he, of getting to the heart of a person. He kind of takes it from the realm of theory. What are are the theories about my identity? And says, who do you believe that I am? It's easy to talk in theory, and, and at some level we all do this in different areas of life, but at some point every person will be confronted with this question, who do you believe that Jesus is? Well, in our world today, we don't, we don't all give the same answer, do we? But one day, everyone will give the same answer. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that on that day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming, but that day is not yet here. So Jesus addresses the disciples as a group. Who do you, you all, y'all, say that I am? And Peter responds for the group in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this moment hasn't rushed upon the disciples. In other words, we've kind of stumbled our way here. Jesus has spent weeks and months getting the disciples to this point, preparing them to answer this question. I mean, no doubt the disciples and many others have discussed Jesus' identity. It's why there are these theories out there. He's a well-known public figure. But this is the first time we've seen a human being make this claim about Jesus. And we've seen a demon do it. A demon say Jesus is the Son of God. The demons recognize him instantly. But this is the first time a human being recognizes Jesus. There are two parts to Peter's answer here. First, he says, you are the Christ. Now, we kind of use Jesus, Jesus Christ interchangeably, or Jesus and Christ. Yet they're actually two different different things. Jesus is his name, like Joshua. It's basically the New Testament version of that name. That's his name. And Christ is his title. Christ is means anointed one or the Messiah. And so Jesus, so Peter is saying Jesus is the Messiah. So when we clearly say Jesus Christ, what we're saying, we're, we're making the same claim that Peter is making here, that the one named Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed king. There's another part of this. He says first that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he second says, he says that Jesus is the son of the living God. Jesus has called himself what? The son of man. But now Peter recognizes something about Jesus, that he not only is the Son of Man, he is the Son of God himself, the Son of the living God. It's no distant God. God moves and breathes and acts through his Son, Jesus. It is not enough to believe that Jesus is a nice person or a good prophet who loves you. I mean, the song is true. Jesus loves me. This I know. That's true. But it's also true that we are accountable to Jesus as our creator in our judge. So you may ask, who is Jesus? Jesus is the just judge and the sovereign savior. He's the holy creator and the suffering redeemer. He's omnipotent and gentle. He knows all things and yet knows you personally. He's the good shepherd and the sacrificial lamb. He deals justice to his enemies and mercy to his people. He's the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. He's the bread of life and the light of the world. He's the head of the church, the bridegroom coming for his bride. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God except through him. Do you know this Jesus? Who is Jesus? 
It's not enough to acknowledge that he's a good teacher or a great man who did some amazing things. To say that he is anything less than God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God, the only Savior of sinners, is to rob Jesus of the glory and worship that he alone deserves. So the question lies before us as it lay before the disciples this day, who do you say that Jesus is? When Peter responds this way, Jesus then responds to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, Peter doesn't learn this because he's smarter than the other disciples. He doesn't learn this by deduction, but by divine revelation. God himself has revealed this to him. Seeing Jesus as the Messiah, as the only Savior of sinners, is a kind gift of a heavenly Father. You see, we're all born into this world knowing that there should be a king, but believing that we should be that king. Believing that we ought to be the one, that the universe revolves around us and our needs. You walk around our house right now, you might hear these words, Oh, I just can't wait to be king. It's from the Lion King. Because Simba believes that he should be king. We were all born with this disease. Believing that we should be king, and yet Jesus is the king. So when our eyes are open to Jesus and his worth, it's not because we're wise and we figured it out, it's because an eternal God has given this answer to a foolish and weak person. God uses the foolish and weak things of the world to confound the wise and to confound the mighty. And so if you're beginning this morning to see the edges of what God has revealed to Peter, that Jesus is our only hope, would you give your life to Christ? Would you turn from your sin and follow Jesus? Would you trust him and him alone to rescue you from your own desire to be king? This brings us to the second major truth in this passage, that Jesus builds his kingdom through the church. Jesus builds his church. So we've kind of got this mutual declaration. Peter says about Jesus, you are the Christ. And, Peter, and Jesus turns around and says about Peter, and you're Peter. So we've got this kind of back and forth here. And then he adds these words, and I'll build my church on this rock. Well, if you've been around the Bible at all for any time, you know there's some debate around what this rock is. The Roman Catholic Church identifies the rock as Peter himself and says that he is the first pope, kind of the first vicar of Rome, the first one who's kind of unique in authority. And yet, Peter himself writes a letter that we have in our Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 5, and he does not see himself as this way. Rather, he sees himself, he calls himself one of your fellow elders, which is the most common word we have in the New Testament for pastor. And so Peter sees himself not as a pope above other pastors, but rather as one of pastors. So what's going on here is that Peter is speaking, but he's speaking representatively for the disciples. Then Jesus responds and says that he will build the church on the apostles and their confession of Jesus, on their confession of faith, their witness to who he is. They begin to see the truth about Jesus, and as they see this truth, Jesus grows his kingdom through their witness. So what we see here and what we see continuing happening today is that Jesus builds the church, on people who see the truth about Jesus. He builds the church on our confession, and the kind of church that Jesus is building cannot be stopped. It is an unconquerable church. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has been teaching for some time. It's his most famous sermon, his longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as he gets near the end of this sermon, he, he tells a story about two men. There's a wise man and a foolish man, and they're both building houses. The foolish man builds his house on 
sand. When the storm comes, the rain and the floods and the wind, then that house collapses. It washes away. The wise man, though, built his house on the rock. So when the storm comes, it's got a foundation that's solid. When the storm comes, that house stands firm. It cannot be conquered. Same kind of language that Jesus uses here when he says the church cannot be uh, conquered by the gates of hell. This house cannot be conquered if it's built on the rock. Well, he talks here, and he kind of uses a rather curious illustration. He talks about gates. Now, we don't really have gates to the city. We just have a bunch of different roads into cities. I mean, maybe symbolically someone gives someone a key to the city, but there's not really a city gate. But this wasn't true in this day. Gates are rather impressive things. They were entrances. And, and so when, when Jesus used the image of a gate, people would have kind of be like me saying sky, skyscraper. You, you, you picture something in your mind. You have a picture of what that is. And gates are really some of the, the biggest areas of construction in any city. This is a picture of the Damascus Gate. It's on the north, northwest side of the old city of Jerusalem, and it's called the Damascus Gate, or Jews call it the Shechem Gate, because it leads to a highway that leads to Shechem that eventually leads to Damascus, and kind of depending on what your uh, nationality is, you call it either the Damascus Gate or the Shechem Gate, based on if you're a Jew or an Arab. But it's a, it's a rather impressive gate in the west wall of Jerusalem. Well, this is an interesting use of the term gates, because do gates attack you, or do you attack a gate if you're trying to get into a city. But Jesus uses actually an expression that sounds like a gate is an offensive weapon. The the gates of hell will not overcome you. But what is it that the gates of hell are supposed to do? Keep people in. You see, it's not people that are dying to get in, it's the people that are in or that are dying to get out, literally dying to get out. And the gates of the underworld, this expression here, Hades, those gates are considered especially large, especially strong, because they keep all the dead people in. But Jesus says the gates of hell themselves are nothing to the power of the Son of God. You see, Jesus died and for three days lay in the clutches of death, but then he rose again and in his own power conquered these gates. He burst those bonds apart, and now Paul tells us that resurrection power is ours. In Romans 8, Paul teaches us this. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors because Jesus himself has conquered sin and death and hell. So when Jesus builds his church, nothing can conquer it because Jesus the conqueror is building his church. 1 John 4 tells us that there are those who oppose Jesus. Little children, John says, you are from God and have overcome these enemies of God. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So there's this battle between Jesus and his enemies. And there's this comparison. The advance of the church depends ultimately upon the ability of Jesus to accomplish His word, and there's this comparison, John says, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Well, imagine this morning that, I don't know, we schedule a race. We we run a race. And we find out in here that you're the fastest person at Ashley River Baptist Church. You kind of thump on your chest, and we say, well, now you get the honor of running against this guy, uh, Usain Bolt. We're going to have another race and see who can win this race. Usain Bolt's from Jamaica, as you may know. He holds the world record in both 100 and 200 meter uh, dash and 
In this case, he's breaking the world record. He owns the world record for the 100-meter race of 9.58 seconds. You cannot run it this fast, even if you try to run it this fast. And so there's a part of us that feels intimidated in this moment. And this is a little bit like this. It's like us doing battle against Satan. It's about us doing battle against the forces in this world. No matter how fast we are, no matter how powerful we are, he'll always be one step ahead. He'll always be a little cleverer. But then we say this. You're going to race Usain Bolt, but he's going to run, and you're going to drive this baby. Now, this is a Porsche 918 Spider. Now, you may or may not know a lot about cars, but this is the fastest, this is the fastest car in terms of getting 0 to 60 miles an hour. can do it in 2.2 seconds. And so suddenly the race feels a little bit more doable. Suddenly, you're not watching Usain Bolt. He's eating your bubbles. And suddenly, he's, he's eating your dust as you speed off into the distance because the, 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 the equation has just changed. And you see, this is what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. This is what happens when the Spirit of God comes and resides in you. You move from this impossible equation. This, this enemy you cannot defeat. The one who is in the world is more powerful than you. But he who is in you is more powerful than he who is in the world. So through Jesus, we are more than conquerors. Through Jesus, we will overcome the world. John goes on and adds this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's by believing the truth about Jesus That God changes us, changes who we are, and empowers us through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is true. We are more than conquerors. But it's not us. It's Jesus in us. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. The Bible calls Christ in us the hope of glory. Jesus guarantees the victory of the church by his omnipotent hand and his faithfulness, not our weak hands, and our unfaithfulness. So we engage in the mission, sharing the gospel, making disciples, but all the time it is Jesus who is building his church through us and guaranteeing the advance of the gospel. Well, Jesus then identifies a key way that he builds the church. And then he uses another another metaphor to picture the nature of his kingdom. He tells us it is an identifiable church. In other words, we can see who this church is. Well, do you remember the picture of verse 18? He says that there are these gates of hell, and these are mighty gates. Jesus is the master of the gates, the authority here, and yet we find him sharing his authority now with the disciples. What is it that that keys represent? I mean, you probably have some in your pocket or in your purse or your bag, or maybe your kids have them and have run off with them, but somewhere, hopefully, you have keys. Well, what do keys represent? Keys represent access. They represent authority. In other words, the authority to enter whatever you have the key to. So this is it's the key to my house. If you have the key to my house, you have the, hopefully, at least the rightfully given authority to enter that house. If you don't have a key to that, to that building, to that car, to that house, you don't, you don't have access or the authority to, to enter that place. Jesus claims that he has authority, and then he immediately gives the key to his disciples. He shares the key. He gives what he calls the keys of the kingdom. Well, this is a small key because it's to a rather small, unimpressive door. But the keys that Jesus shares are are big, impressive keys. Because you've got got the gates of hell, but now you have Jesus sharing the key to to the city of heaven itself. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
And this opening and closing happens in heaven itself. And so at some level, you have the disciples with the access to, to let in or, or keep out. That's what, that's what keys do. So we've got Jesus who conquers the gates of hell, and now he gives his disciples access, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is one of only two times in Scripture where Jesus talks about the church. We have a lot about the church in the New Testament for the book of Acts and the epistles, so kind of after the gospel's on, but there are only two times that Jesus talks about the church. One is here in chapter 16, as he does here, Matthew 16, 18, and then also in Matthew 18, just a couple of chapters later. And in Matthew 16, he says that our access, our keys to the kingdom depend upon whether we believe the truth about Jesus. So Jesus says, Peter, you recognize who I am, and so I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. You get access. So when we believe who Jesus is, you get access to this kingdom. Well, then in Matthew 18, he kind of adds another stipulation, and he says that that's that's the passage in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. That's the passage on church discipline where you, you overtake someone in a fault, you go to that person, if they, if they hear you, great. If they don't, you take someone else. And then if they don't hear that person, you take it to the church, and everyone tries to go and say, hey, you need, you need to listen up here, you need to repent. And the point of that passage is that, that we can live in a way that shows that Jesus isn't our king. So first, we have to believe the truth about Jesus, Matthew 16, what he teaches here. Matthew 18, it says, we have to live in a way that shows that we believe that. So we can either, by our words or by how we live, essentially disqualify ourselves from access to the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, I care about what you believe in how you live. And so the point is that now as followers of Jesus, we can deny Jesus by our words, denying him, as Peter himself will do, or we can deny him by how we live. In both cases, though, Jesus says it's the church's job to identify what a true follower of Jesus believes and how that follower lives. So what this means is that a local church recognizes who is and who isn't a part of the church. This means that we should be living in relationship with one another. This means that we should be gathered in and actively involved in the life of the church, not merely names on a list. Church membership isn't about where you're born or whether your name is on a roll. Rather, church membership is a covenant commitment lived out in active relationship and worship with an identifiable group of believers. So it's people who are accountable to one another, people who know one another and who see one another regularly in worship. In other words, when Jesus uses this, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven, he means you're recognizing who is and who isn't a part of the church. It means that we must believe the gospel and continue believing the gospel. Then he gives us ways to do this. He says you do this through baptism, recognize who's part of the church, and through the Lord's Supper, people who have this meal together. It's why we try to meet with people before they're baptized to make sure they understand who Jesus is. Or meet with people before they become part of the church to be sure they understand who Jesus is. It'd be like this. Uh, imagine that um, it's your job to make sure, when, whether, whether you give online or whether you drop in an offering plate, it's your job to make sure that gets where it's supposed to go. And so this morning we have um, some men and ladies take up uh, the offering as part of our worship. And some of you put something in the offering plate, some of you might give online or some other way, and that's fine. But, uh, but these people go, and they, they take it out, and they, they kind of walk out the back door, and they set the, uh, the offering plate on the sidewalk outside the church instead of uh, walking it someplace. And they, and they leave it out there, and then uh, they come back later, and, uh, and it's empty. And so, I don't know, you, you like giving in cash, and so you put 10 $100 bills in that plate, and it's gone. 
Now, we don't know at this point if someone walked by and picked it up or if it blew off. We, we really don't know what happened. Hope, hopefully it blew away that you know, no one took what was in the offering plate. But we don't know. Now, you'd immediately recognize, like, that ain't, that ain't the way you take care of money. I mean, if, if, if you're going to be accountable for what happens to that money, you, you need some oversight. In fact, every church I've ever been in has rules about, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't take it by yourself. In other words, you know, like no one walks the money by himself. You know, there's always some one or two other people there. So there's some accountability, some evidence, uh, some oversight. We know it's important that we be accountable and aware for what happens to that. And what Jesus is teaching here is the same thing is true of people. In other words, we wouldn't, we wouldn't take money and just kind of set it down or not take care of it. And he's saying, like, you gotta, you got to have the same kind of care for one another that you would take care of, like, in terms of financial oversight. And really, this is one of the great challenges facing our church. Because we have gathered or, or regularly active in the life of our church, I don't know, 450 to 500 people. So we average in attendance uh, between our two services just, just over 400 people uh, this year. But on our membership role, we have uh, more than 2,800 people which means that there are 2,300 plus that we have a hard time identifying, that we have a hard time kind of knowing who they are. And, and Jesus says it's kind of like setting the offering plate down outside, and, and you know, it's like you don't know where the money is. And, and so this is one reason that the deacons have begun reaching out to members trying to know who they are because we recognize that before God, like this is, this is part of what a church does. And so now look at verse 20. He ends by strictly charging the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The disciples see Jesus for a king, but Jesus comes as Messiah. It's not time for him to rule as king yet. In the next verses, Jesus predicts his suffering and his death. And Peter responds with, no way, Jesus, you're not dying. And Jesus says, get behind me. And here he does not call him Peter. Here he does not call him a rock. He says, get behind me, Satan. The disciples want a kingdom. Jesus is building a church. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is building his church. He doesn't need us to do it. He doesn't need you. And he certainly doesn't need me. But he wonderfully gives us an opportunity to be part of the growth of the church. So let's recognize our mission to make disciples. Let's recognize our commitment to love one another. And then let's watch God work. Let's watch Jesus work. Let's watch God surprise us in the way he builds his kingdom. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell themselves cannot prevail against it. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to respond to God in your seat, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.